My name is Charles Yu. I live in New Canaan with my lovely wife, Era, and two teenage boys, Jonathan and Daniel. I was born in South Korea in the early 70s. My parents met at a church planted by missionaries who came from Holland and the United States. These men trained up native preachers who then went on to become the leaders of our Baptist congregation. As soon as I could walk, I was taking the bus with my parents and siblings to church on Sundays. Every summer and winter, we attended Bible retreats. Outside of school, there was simply nothing more important in life. I grew up listening to countless hours of sermons about Yesunim, which is the Lord Jesus in Korean. More than any miracles or holidays, the greatest emphasis was placed on Jesus' words concerning sin, salvation, end of the world, and the great judgment. Verses from the gospel became like thorns convicting and hedging around my soul all throughout my childhood. Here are a few that stood out to me. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you even look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery. If you say to your brother, you fool, you are in danger of hellfire. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. For it is appointed for man to die once, and after this, the judgment. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked. The most dreadful part of all, really, were the impending rapture and the tribulation. My terror was compounded when one by one my cousins and my siblings gleefully announced that they were saved. I didn't even know what that meant. I had nightmares where my family and friends had all been raptured, and I was alone in the world surrounded by marching skeletons. The valley of bones had come to life in the night, and they were going to destroy the world with me in it. I cried myself to sleep, praying to God that he would not leave me abandoned. In 1980, our family moved to the United States. We settled into American life with lots of help from other families who came before us. My father joined a toy factory in Brooklyn. We attended a Korean church where they taught the same fundamental Baptist doctrines that we always learned. Anticipation from the church and my mother to become saved remained sincere and constant. I was young, but already I was a liar and a thief. When my brother bullied me, I hated him with murderous hate. All the sins that Jesus condemned were sprouting in my heart like poisonous weeds. I resented the burdensome doctrines that fought against my own nature, yet at the same time, I could not deny that the urgency was real and what was at stake was serious. Prophecies were being fulfilled out in the world. President Reagan was provoking the communists by calling them out for who they were, an evil empire. Our military leaders talked of preparing Star Wars, and there were rumors of a unified Europe under one government and one currency. All things pointed to a world that unites in defiance against God 
yet at the same time fulfilling God's prophecies in their rebellion. Time was running out on the world and I had no assurance of salvation and no faith. So in 1986, at my mother's urging, I attended a sermon series called The Bible is True. It was well known in church that people became born again while listening to these sermons. They experienced a spiritual transformation and came out of it saved, born again, accepted and heaven bound. I learned from those sermons the broader biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through the sacrificial atonement of Christ at the cross. All the fragments that I heard secondhand from parents and peers were presented comprehensively, verse by verse, directly from the Bible. The gospel was a masterpiece of God orchestrated across history for the grand purpose of filling up his church with believers who loved him. The cross of Jesus was the timeless banner at the pinnacle of this master plan. I learned for the first time how the sacrificial laws of Moses were a prophetic ordinance in anticipation of the suffering Messiah. The entire history of the Jews was an irrefutable evidence of the Holy One of Israel and his will concerning humanity. Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 10 through 16 through 18 were the verses that gave me my first palpable proof of salvation assurance from God. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. These verses read to me like a contract from God signed in blood. There it was in print and irrevocable. What more is needed on the day of judgment if not the promise of remission of sin spoken by God himself. For once I felt confident enough to declare myself saved and born again. I felt glad and, and at peace for having found biblical assurance. A few days later I was baptized in a swimming pool in Flushing, Queens. This was May 5th, 1986. So you may be asking then, what on earth is he doing up there now? I'm here to testify with all seriousness that a Christian who is validated outwardly through a born-again experience can still be unregenerate at his spiritual core. Knowledge of correct doctrine does not necessarily mean you are spiritually a new creature, especially if you are raised in a society where conformity is prized above personal reality. I was raised in a community that had turned regeneration of the Holy Spirit into a requisite church sacrament. What I lacked in personal conviction, I naturally compensated for by spouting what I thought was orthodoxy. I had outward expressions of adherence and compliance that demonstrated faith by earthly measures, but before an all-knowing God, my faith was counterfeit. You see, a so-called Christian who backslides continually over the years without repentance is most likely not a Christian at all. I had become exhibit number one to this charge and offense. If you read on in Hebrews 10, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has ignored the laws of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe a punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? That dreadful passage is exactly where I found my life headed in the decades that followed. The rebellion I had as a teenager um, became double strength with hypocrisy, and I lived like the devil all throughout college, carousing and indulging with friends out in the world, all the while in church keeping my gallery of sins a secret. My heart eventually became host to every detestable spirit that came in from the wild. My soul was like the house that was exercised and cleaned, only to be inhabited by seven demons much stronger than the first. I had all the trappings of a judgy fundamentalist when I needed to be, but in my heart of hearts, I struggled with every passion of the flesh, lust, greed, pride and envy, strife, contention, and bouts of anger, with blasphemous cursing always dangling from my lips. What was once a singular burden before God had morphed into a two-headed monster of hidden unbelief and religious hypocrisy. It was seven years into my marriage that God finally touched my life and shook my core. Our newborn son, who I loved, was diagnosed with terminally illness, terminal illness with a rare genetic syndrome that could require lifelong treatment, possibly a liver transplant, and possibly lead to an early death. I found myself praying like I had never prayed before. I knew that God had done this because I had betrayed him for so long and so deeply. I knew this was a sentence from his throne for having offended the Holy Spirit with my willful sins and living out a mockery of the name of Christ. I reviewed all the years of living as a two-faced hypocrite, harboring treacherous resentments aimed at my God. As I called out to him in my humble desperation, I finally realized how little regard I actually had for the Lord and his greatest work, which was done on the cross at his death. Sure, of course, I had obsessed uh, over my salvation and my safety, but as far as who Christ is, I didn't have a genuine, fervent interest. The holy and sovereign person of Jesus himself had been, in essence, just a hindrance to all the unfettered enjoyment that I could have experienced in life. His crucifixion was never a living, hurting, tragic tearing of God's own heart, as it should have been. The cross, to me, was just a distant symbol of God's test for our salvation. And the Son of God on that cross had just been a kind of a phantom deity who volunteered for momentary pain that was no worse in reality than what a typical ancient slave suffered. So I repented for my years of dishonoring the cross of Jesus with this open heart disobedience. I prayed that God would punish me instead of my son, maybe even to cut off offending limbs 
if that would appease his indignation. My son's permanent genetic condition eventually just vanished one day, all on its own with a simple non-explanation from the authorities, a misdiagnosis. After all that ordeal, the doctors were just wrong. Thanks be to God. My spiritual condition, however, lingered in its darkened state. Now God was pressing on me with a deep, dark dread of his absence. In the wake of all that happened recently, it was clear to me that my soul was in profound trouble. So searching my heart with dead serious honesty before God, I realized that my faith was just paper thin and had no real substance. I believed in God as a kid just so that I could be saved and go to heaven and avoid the tribulation. But as far as who God, this God is exactly, I did not know and I could not say. Did he even exist? Even as I prayed, I searched my heart and could not find any proof of his being there at all. Had the Holy Spirit finally left me for my multitude of defiling sins and unbelief? It was conclusive. I had no faith. My life was a joke, and I would die and be judged as such. And if there was a hell, I was absolutely headed there. My years of wavering and dread dreadful doubt suddenly became very clear and simple. I was not saved. I was never born again of the Holy Spirit. I was baptized to appease church folks and an anxious mother. I professed Christ when I had to, but in reality, I never really knew him. Most importantly, however, he never knew me. It was around that time that my wife showed me a sermon video of the young Paul Washer. Uh, it tasted like bitter medicine to my ears. He said, <laughs> he said, you don't tell men they are saved. You tell men how to be saved. God tells them they are saved. What we have forgotten to believe is that salvation is a supernatural work of God and those who have genuinely been converted, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to be a new creature. This was harsh rebuke, but it was true. Truth that was sweet to my soul. So I listened more and I downloaded more sermons and eventually my iPod was purged of pop and rock and roll and instead, it was full of uh, hymns and sermons from Paul Washer and his friend Charles Leiter, uh, other preachers like John Piper, R.C. Sproul, and John MacArthur, and even Mark Driscoll. For the next several months, I listened to perhaps a thousand hours of sermons and hymns uh, commuting back and forth to work. As I listened to the gospel preachers with voracious hunger, I found several important gaps in my understanding of God that all originate from God's holiness. Holiness of God elevates all of his other attributes to a level of perfection that is utterly unfathomable for us creatures. Namely, these were his sovereignty, his righteousness, and his absolute omniscience, and his love. His love was perfect and holy, rebuke, uh, holy love Unlike ours, um, his love is innocent of any, purity, in any impurity. God is the owner of all things and the author of our every affection, but in a perfect state. Another huge gap in doctrine was that of the Holy Spirit and common grace. The Spirit of God is exactly as Jesus said. It is like a wind that comes and goes where he wishes, free and uncontrolled by men. 
He cannot be confined to boundaries set by men, and he is zealously revealing the glory of the Father and the Son to people in places whether we know it or not. He will not share the glory of his salvation with any angel or men. We are merely his servants. He alone chooses to whom the gospel will be revealed unto repentance and faith. His grace gives breath and every enjoyable provision for living. All the while, sinners pollute creation day after day with blasphemy and willful disobedience. It baffles the angels that God suffers so long with fallen sinners standing with our fist raised who are in fact the cause of the curse that is ordained for all of creation. We bear his indelible image on eternal souls, yet we cannot escape subjection to futility that is here now or the day of God's wrath. Annihilation of the soul is a terrible lie before an omniscient God who searches and recalls every idle thought. The flames of hell are not in total absence of God, but in the full inescapable presence of his fiery wrath. So marveling day after day at the aspects of God, as I had never known before, I kept listening to sermons. And one night, um, one cold January night, I was listening to one called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. As I got off the bus and started the frozen car, the pastor was describing the meaning of the Levitical blood sacrifice. Blood was ordained by God without, without which there is no remission of sin. For us, the blood re represents the sheer horror and disgust that sin represents in heaven before God and the holy angels. That God would require blood sacrifice is not barbaric or perverse. It is merely an object lesson for humanity to see and feel viscerally the horrors of our sin against a holy and just God. It is also a prophetic reference directed at the gross injustice and bloodshed that the Lamb of God would suffer at the hands of violent men. When the Roman cross was described to me in that sermon, I almost heard an inaudible reply from the lips of the Lord, saying, whatever punishment you pray for your atonement, I have already borne it for you. I could see in my mind the Son of God lifted up on the filthy execution stake under a blackened sky. The Prince of Heaven, tortured and spat upon by wicked sinners like me. <laughs> the breather of the Holy Spirit hung there gasping for air so that I could breathe and walk free here on earth. The fountain of life withered dry and thirsty so that I could drink the water of life and live. The life giver poured out his blood upon this cursed soil so that a treasonous wretch like me, only fit for hellfire, would be washed of sin and be called clean before his throne, his hands and feet nailed down so that I could lift my hands in worship and stand before the Father, justified and forgiven. The Lord, creator of all things, gave up every joy, every treasure, and even his life, so that I could possess his riches and walk the streets of gold. 
He subjected himself to the fate of a slaughtered animal so that a sinner like me would sit at his table and feast with him in heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God since his ascension with his precious blood still displayed and his prayers pleading so that a sinner such as I with no goodness in me at all would be called good, accepted, and righteous before the king of righteousness. I broke down before that cross as I have never done before my soul, spirit, and body. As I was driving and weeping, all I could say was, thank you, Lord. You did that for me so that I could be called clean, so that I could be clean, called righteous, so that a worthless sinner like me would be called clean and righteous, that a vile fool like me would be acceptable in your sight. And Father, you also, you so loved the world that you took upon yourself a pain unfathomably deep in the death of your beloved son, in faith that a sinner such as I would repent and believe. It was grace so overwhelming that I could not stop weeping and thanking and saying I was sorry. I somehow did not crash the car and I made it home. <laughs> that's, that's the first miracle. <laughs> uh, this was 15 years ago. And since that night, Jesus has been my Lord and Savior, my master and my king, no matter what anyone or anyone can claim. I feel a compassion for the Lord that did not exist before in my heart and how he suffered. He was worth more than the universe. And there are no injustices before the injustice of Christ crucified. The Father is fully righteous to judge a world that is indifferent to his slain son. I now see that the will of God is not merely for people to be saved from damnation, but that all creatures, human, angel, or beast, would behold his son and glorify him for all of eternity. The reason the world continues and you and I are alive today is so that we would behold the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross and worship him as he ought to be worshiped. The Holy Spirit lives in me and constrains me, but joyfully. I have a newfound love for any soul who blesses the name of Jesus, for it is the most blessed name there is. And I hate the world that hated him. My quiet moments are no longer haunted with gloom and dread. Instead, he draws me into prayer and reveals joyful insights into his heart and his glorious kingdom that is coming. This blessed congregation is also a part of that heavenly kingdom. I see sin and sinners as he sees them. I see the corruption in this world as fuel for the fire that is coming. All assurance of saving faith will always come entirely from the truth that the Son of God lived and was forsaken by God and murdered on a Roman stake for God's glory and for my forgiveness. And glory of glories, he was resurrected to a body 
like no angel or man, no creature had ever seen. As firstborn of the new heaven and new earth, where the curse is lifted and every fiber of reality is restored to sinless perfection, I am happy, I am happy and honored to the uttermost to be buried with my Lord this blessed day so that he will raise me on the last trumpet to a body incorruptible and holy. And I say with all comfort to you saints and the martyrs who have gone before us, the holy angels and all of creation groaning under the chains of futility, hallelujah, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and, and consummate our liberty into your everlasting glory in the flesh and face to face. joy to see it. when we first met uh, Chuck and his wife Erin uh, that was one of the first things that uh, was evident about their character was uh, the sincerity of their faith and their humility and what a testimony to him who was dead and made alive by the sheer sovereign grace of Christ and it is for that reason and your trust in him that it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. continue to pray for uh, Chuck and Era, and uh, we have some testimonies at the end of this month as well, and let's rejoice together as uh, I just close this part before John comes up with a word of prayer, thanking God for his mercy to us in Christ. Father, thank you for the witness of your grace. It comes to people in a variety of ways from where they are in life, but it always funnels down to the same truth, a recognition of our corruption and the glorious reality that Christ bore that condemnation for us, that no matter what the guilt of the sinner, there is forgiveness and the promise of life in Christ. So thank you for these clear testimonies of that marvelous and infinite and eternal grace, and may they and we who know you continue to walk in a manner that is worthy of you and pleasing to you. 